ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. On today's podcast, we will talk about editing humans. A recent editorial in Nature magazine warns about the dangers, both medically and ethically, of genetic testing of human embryos. And joining us today is someone who has followed, researched, and written this issue for many years. He's a senior fellow at Discovery Institute, where he directs the Center on Human Exceptionalism. He writes regularly at National Review's The Corner on bioethics, human exceptionalism, euthanasia, all sorts of related right-to-life topics. And most recently, he is hosting the very excellent new podcast, Humanize, which you can find on all podcast aggregators, but especially easy at humanize.today. That's a web address, actually. Uh, just point your browser of choice to humanize.today, and you'll find his writings and podcast interviews there. Welcome to ID the Future, Wesley J. Smith. Thanks, Rob. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Even with these kind of crazy articles that we're seeing and that you see and write about so much, we're looking at what amounts, I guess, to editing humans, essentially eugenics, right? Yes, we're, we are in an era of eugenics with sharp teeth. And of course, I'm sure most of your listeners know, eugenics originated in the late 19th century. And the idea was to treat the human race as we might an animal herd. And that is to breed and make sure that the quote fit bred abundantly and that the quote unfit were limited in their ability to procreate. And it got to the point of true tyranny where people were involuntarily sterilized to prevent them from uh, having children. About 50 to 60,000 Americans were involuntarily sterilized after the Supreme Court in one of its most infamous cases in history, Buck v. Bell, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, three imbeciles of uh, three generations of imbeciles is enough and allowed a woman who had done nothing wrong except to be raped by a foster family member and impregnated to be sterilized. After uh, the Holocaust, eugenics went into a bad odor, as it should have all along, but now it's back. And it's back with this idea of gene editing, genetic engineering, transhumanism, the idea of creating a post-human species. And in fact, the first gene-edited children were already born in China a couple of years ago. So we have the background, we get to this point, and nobody mentions, interestingly, in a lot of these articles, the word eugenics, even though that's what they're actually talking about. Nature Magazine described in their editorial how companies are testing human embryos to see if they have the genes that lead to future diseases after birth. And then as I understood, they're either editing those genes out of the DNA or aborting the babies, getting rid of them. Well, we've got a couple of things happening here. There's a lot of investigation going on in terms of embryonic uh, research to try to find out what genes do what, when, and so forth. Right. And most genes do more than one thing. I mean, there are a few genes that just do one thing, but most genes do many more than one thing. And sometimes uh, you can have a gene that does something that's positive and one that's negative at the same time. For example, the gene that, that leads to sickle cell anemia uh, is thought to also help people resist malaria. And so when you start messing with the human genome at this most primordial or fundamental level, 
you don't know what you're doing. We don't have the wisdom to do it. We don't have the knowledge to do it. But it seems to me we also don't have the right to do it. Because what we are saying when we do this research and then create gene-edited children, and I'll explain what happened in just a second there, we are saying that we have the right not only to have children, but the children that we want. It's almost like we believe we have the right to special order our children and therefore engage in quality control as in any other means of manufacture. Now, in China, uh, you have this uh, very powerful gene editing technique called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, that basically is probably the most powerful biotechnology or human technology, at least since the splitting of the atom. Wow. Because it allows any cell, any life form to be genetically modified. Uh, and it's done very easily and very efficiently. Uh, you could do very good things with that. For example, if somebody has a genetic disease and they're, let's say I had a genetic disease, you might be able to actually help me with my genetic disease by changing my genes. That's called somatic gene editing. But there's another approach called germline gene editing. And this would not only change the genetic makeup of the coming child, but those changes, unlike somatic gene editing, would actually pass down the generations. So what you're doing is you're, you're altering humankind on a very fundamental level. And a lot of this is aimed at health, sometimes immediate issues, but also, as, as the Nature article described, long-term issues, like somebody who might have a propensity to get cancer, say, in their 50s, or somebody who might have a propensity to get type 2 diabetes when they're in their 70s, or something of that kind. It could also be applied, as, as more research is being done, to things that might be called enhancement. That is the idea of increasing intelligence or uh, having a certain hair color. It's already being done for sex selection in terms of embryo selection. And they're also, of course, trying to, the, in terms of uh, Down syndrome, there's a search and right. destroy mission ongoing where prenatal testing, not the gene editing, but the prenatal testing can find the gene responsible for Down syndrome and make sure that that baby never sees the light of day. And that's happening to the point where Iceland brags that there are no children with Down syndrome being born, which is true because they're all being killed. Wow. And we're the losers as a society. We're the losers as yes. a society because we are losing these very gentle and sweet and loving people among us. When I was young, people with Down syndrome were ubiquitous. Now you don't see them that often because most of them are not being born. But to the China issue, you had a scientist in China who may have had some American help, but that's still being determined, where he gene edited two embryos to not have a gene that is thought to have some impact on becoming HIV positive because the father of these embryos, the, the person who donated the sperm, had HIV. But there are ways to prevent embryos when you have a parent with HIV from catching HIV. And But he decided to do this, and, and this child, two children actually, were born genetically engineered in this fashion. And then it turns out that this gene may also, not having it, make it greater propensity to catch influenza. So here's again the double-edged sword. That scientist, was there was a huge hue and cry, and I submit, and I wrote quite a bit about this, it wasn't because of what was done, but when. 
In other words, the bioethicists and the biotechnologists had not yet been able to soften the society to say, oh, this is going to keep your, your grandfather from getting Parkinson's, or this is only for health. So there was a human cry. He was actually jailed in China. I, I submit that because, of course, China's a tyranny, they knew what was happening. If the world had applauded, he would have his own lab today. So that's the circumstance we find ourselves in. We now already have gene-edited children. It was done for a eugenic purpose, and that research is continuing. And every time there's an attempt to have enforceable regulations about this kind of research, for example, let's have a moratorium so we can even have the discussion of what we want to do. The scientists, quote unquote, say, no, 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 it should all be voluntary guidelines. Well, those are worth the paper they're written on. Right. The voluntary guidelines are involuntary, kind of. I mean, they just don't follow them. They ignore it for the most part. Like you said, there must be some voluntary guidelines in Iceland. So what's happened is now you they're, they're bragging about having eradicated any people that might have had Down syndrome. Well, actually, is, in Iceland, it's a wide open. You can have an abortion for whatever reason you want. Wow. But the, um, well, that's true in the United States, too. But the situation with regard to biotech, should we do germ line editing, for example, versus somatic line gene editing? We're not able to get a, a meeting of the minds to even have a moratorium so we could have the discussion about what we should allow, what we shouldn't allow, and whether or not it should be legally enforceable. President Trump, I have to say, and I challenged him repeatedly at Nash Review, never once even brought up the issue. I mean, to me, that was an abdication. And you certainly don't see President Biden bringing up the issue either. In fact, right now, it's wild, wild west. I mean, there are certain restrictions on government funding that pre-exist this kind of technology, but it's pretty much wild, wild west. And this, of course, the whole point of this is quality control of the human line, and that is eugenics. And the fact nature doesn't want to call it that is because of the negative association eugenics has appropriately, but that's exactly what it is. And your reviewing of the various organizations, magazines, scientists, associations, all of that, that, that are involved in this, your sense is that it's not that they don't want to do it. It's that they are softening up the public for accepting it and getting people ready to be okay with it. Something like that. They, they don't want to do it until it's safe, quote unquote. But how do you get it safe? You have to do an awful lot of research to get it safe. And you're going to be doing research on embryos and fetuses to do that. But secondly, they're not against it in principle. And they've made it very clear some of these associations are not against it in principle. So the issue is safety. And then the issue also is, well, what will the public accept? The third thing is there used to be a rule in the uh, stem cell professional association called the 14-day rule. The 14-day rule said you could do experiments on, on embryos in a dish up to 14 days. And then after that, you had to destroy the embryo. When the 14-day rule was passed, I wrote that the only reason they're doing this is because they cannot yet keep an embryo past 14 days. So they're willing to not permit what they cannot do. And I predicted accurately that once they could do it, then they would get rid of the 14-day rule. And guess what? About a year ago, they got rid of the 14-day rule because they can now maintain embryonic life beyond that 
two-week period. And at some point when you end up with artificial wombs, you're going to see experiments on living fetuses, I predict. And wow. And, and if you have a, a situation now where some states, for example, Vermont has a new uh, law that says that no fetus has any rights of any kind. Well, that goes beyond abortion, doesn't it? Which has supposedly has to do with a mother not having her body controlled by others. But if a, a fetus has no independent rights of its own, that means we can do anything we want to it. Yeah. So how slippery is this slope that we're on? You know, there are well-intentioned scientists learning how to do this gene editing, but that is a slippery slope, isn't it? Beyond a slippery slope, it's already facts on the ground. So you, you, you have several issues that need to be discussed. You don't want an outright ban on this technology because a lot of good can come from it. A right. somatic gene editing could do a tremendous amount of good for people. It might be helpful in treating cancers. It might be helpful in treating uh, something like, let's say, uh, Alzheimer's disease or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's. Who knows? And because the only person impacted by that treatment would be the patient. In other words, it would not flow down the generations. Even if a terrible mistake were made, it would only impact that particular patient. And every medical treatment has the potential for unwanted side effects. But we cannot even get a ban on germline genetic engineering, which involves using the CRISPR to change the genome of, uh, let's say, sperm or eggs or early embryos. We cannot even get that to be officially um, a moratorium. I mean, there are, oh, well, you shouldn't do this, blah, blah, blah. But, that's, you know, if I'm a scientist and I say, hey, I want that Nobel Prize or I want that money and there's no, there's no potential punishment other than my peers may say, we don't think you're very nice, then who knows who's going to stop me? And then we have government officials who won't even bring the issue up from Trump to Biden and others, including Republicans and Democrats. And I think it has to do with the embryonic stem cell debate with George W. Bush's presidency, which I was deeply involved in, where Bush put very modest restrictions on federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. And he was accused by the left of wanting to uh, keep people in wheelchairs. I mean, it was just an astonishing level of mendacity in that debate. And I think that a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with that debate in politics, because one side will say, oh, we want to cure people. And you want people to be sick and to suffer. Well, you know, it's not true. And there are really important right. moral issues involved here that we cannot even get real focus on, because people would rather look at uh, what Kim Kardashian's up to in the latest episode, <laughs> you know? Right. And these are the issues that you write about all the time. And now that you are doing the Humanize podcast, you're interviewing people involved in bioethic issues like right. this. Tell us a little bit about the Humanize podcast. Oh, thanks. You know, I got tired of just me being the one expressing my opinion. So I decided to see if I could get some of the best thinkers we have on various issues that are germane to human exceptionalism, our rights, our duties, and so forth. And I've had some tremendous guests. I've had Jay Bhattacharya, the doctor who was one of the movers and shakers behind the Great Barrington Declaration with regard to the lockdowns and COVID. I had Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a disability rights activist and tremendous Christian apologist who gives free wheelchairs to the third world and developing world, uh, who gave a tremendous witness to her own Christian faith. 
I've interviewed people who I disagree with. Zoltan Istvan, for example, who is probably the chief popularizer of transhumanism, the idea of creating a post-human species and somehow defeating death in the corporeal world. I've had one of the uh, great animal rights activist, Gary Francione, uh, who believes that we shouldn't have a right to own animals for any reason, for any purpose, including pets. So he and I had a long discussion. So we've had some uh, very interesting give and take with people I agree with, people I don't agree with. I had Robbie George, the Princeton professor, who has a pretty absolutist uh, view on academic freedom. And we discussed that and how that might apply to people like Peter Singer, who support infanticide. And so I'm hoping people will uh, enjoy these about 45 minute to one hour interviews where we can really get into depth in some of the most important issues of our day. I like that you talk about having discussions as opposed to having debates. Correct. You know, debates are, are fine, but it's more productive to discuss things with people and understand the point of view that they're coming from. And on humanize, I've been impressed by the depth of the conversations and the respect and and give and take that you have the rapport with your guests. They've all oh, been thank you. really good. I think it's yeah, I think it's important because if all we're gonna do is scream at each other, then all we're are is often our respective corners. Right. And when I uh, disagree vehemently sometimes with these guests, it's important to let them explain themselves so that the listener can come to their own conclusions. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that's something that we've always tried to do here on ID the Future as well in the uh, intelligent design evolution debate. We've only ever wanted to speak for ourselves as opposed to having people say what they think we're doing or talking about. One of the things that Rob, I've noticed is that because I'm not in the intelligent design field, but I get, you know, attacked about it quite a bit. And it's always very interesting that the people who attack it always think they can define what the Discovery Institute means by intelligent design. And they're usually wrong. Yeah. They're dead wrong. And by the way, one of the people I interviewed a fascinating discussion with Stephen Meyer. Yes. Uh, where we we discussed uh, his latest book and how information is an indication of proof of God and so forth. So it uh, was very interesting. Well, Wesley, thank you for joining us. Be sure to follow Wesley at humanize.today. That's humanize.today. And of course, you can find more great podcasts from Discovery Center for Science and Culture at idthefuture.com. I'm Robert Crowther. Thank you for your interest in our work. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.